I came to realize that some of the deeper ideas as to why we get into these quite serious problems reflect the fact that the world is radically uncertain and you cannot fool yourself into thinking that by the use of either computers or probabilities that you can somehow price all the risks in the world and then sell the risks in a market in such a way that we've tamed it. And welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known, clever people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and work out what they're all about. And I'm delighted to have with me today former Governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, who's just got a book out called Radical Uncertainty, which I've been ploughing through. I'm a pretty innumerate type of character, I have to say, uh, Lord King, and uh, so I apologise. <laughs> you might have to work a bit harder explaining some stuff to me. Well, we have time uh, to do it, John. <laughs> very good indeed, very good. Thank you for being here. The way this normally works is we start um, by, I start by asking you if you just describe a little bit about where you come from, about the home you brought up in and something about the ideas that were floating around in your family. So my father was a school teacher trained in the program for people coming out of the army in the Second World War. Uh, there was a special program to train soldiers leaving the forces to be teachers. So he trained in that. And he moved around the country as he moved up in his profession. So we moved around a lot too. And that really had two, two consequences. One was that I was able in later life to say that I was the local boy made good in quite a remarkably large number of <laughs> parts of the United Kingdom. But more importantly, that my father, being a teacher, always took care to ensure that we had access to the best state schools available. So I was very fortunate in going to two very good state primary schools, three actually, three very good state primary schools, and then to go to a very good grammar school, Wolverhampton Grammar School. And I sort of grew up, really, in Wolverhampton. And then later went to, to Cambridge. Wolverhampton is where you uh, developed your unspeakable love for Aston Villa, as I understand. It was, and the reason is interesting. It's because at the time, Wolverhampton Wanderers was the bigger team. It was the team that pioneered flood night, flood light, lit uh, midweek football matches. And, and they had probably the best players in the England team and so some of their really good players who couldn't make it as regular first team players and had been sold to Aston Villa but they wanted to keep the houses so when we moved into the street we were uh, living in in Wolverhampton uh, there was one Aston Villa player Bobby Thompson living next door he had as a lodger uh, Derek Dugan and opposite was the great Villa goalkeeper Nigel Sims probably the best goalkeeper in the post-war period not to have appeared regularly for England. And they were, you know, how could I possibly do anything other than follow Aston Villa? <laughs> and of course, although we're in a difficult position now, taking the 60 years as a whole since I first started watching Aston Villa play, Villa have been a more important team than Wolverhampton Wanderers. <laughs> were there books and uh, what, what was the sort of intellectual atmosphere of your home? So it was an intellectual atmosphere. My my father would bring books home that he had seen at school or got through the school. He was also a uh, Methodist local preacher. Oh, was he? So Sundays was a time when we weren't really allowed to go out and play outside, so we stayed indoors and read books, etc. Uh, so it was intellectual in, in that sense, yes. Same upbringing with Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in many ways, rather similar. Not living in a metropolitan London environment and, yeah. and not in a family that uh, had the great and the good to come for dinner. We didn't have lots of dinner parties. It was a very much a lower middle class family. And we both, my brother and I have a younger brother, and he also went to Wolverhampton Grammar School. And the, the church there was very much the centre of the collective social life. I mean, I, I read your book and I was, I have, I'm a priest, so I have an ear out for any sort of theological reference. The only one I got is actually the, the sentence before last, where you say we now see through a, a glass yes. dimly, which is a, a reference to St Paul, obviously. Um, but apart from that, there's no, the theology is not even something that you sort of reference uh, by way of examples for things. 
No, I think we wanted to take in the book examples of uncertainty that most people would understand and that many of them have applications to public policy. But there is a, a sort of generic issue here, which is that the the belief that you can quantify everything and therefore suppress things that we don't really understand fully is part of this view that sorry, humans can control everything. And I think that is one thing which John Kay and I, my co-author John Kay, and I react quite strongly against. That one can be part of the role of the book is to ask the question: What does it mean to be rational in a world of deep uncertainty? No, and that is something which we think cannot be answered in terms that, say, a computer would answer. One of the contributions of the book, I think, is to point out that the sort of reasoning that humans engage in is deliberately different from that of computers and this is not a failure of human beings it's actually we've evolved to be good at dealing with ambiguity with mysteries with complexity and if it was a really important attribute to think like a computer and to make no mistakes of mathematical or probabilistic reasoning the human race would have evolved to be more like computers one of the extraordinary things about the uh, enormous explosion of work on behavioural economics and the idea that governments should nudge people towards certain decisions is the view that we all know what humans are supposed to do. They're supposed to be maximising and optimising all the time. And if they don't do that, then it's a sign of a failure, a weakness, a bias, to use the jargon in human behaviour. And now lots of economists have identified, I think it's well over 100 such biases. And you have to ask the question, if, if we are all so completely hopeless as humans, how come we're the dominant species on Earth? And the reason is that we've developed skills and attributes which enable us to deal with problems that can't be fully specified mathematically and also that we are very good at working together. Economics as a discipline has tended to assume that individuals, operators in, as individuals, they, they maximise their own happiness and they don't talk a lot about the interaction between them and making decisions collectively. When they talk about public policy, it's as if there's a single collective decision taker, you know, the government making these decisions on our behalf. The world is a lot more complicated than that. And we, we develop our thinking and come to reach decisions by you know, talking with others. This is an important part of being human. It's very interesting how that you contrast that sort of narrative approach to understanding things, collective approach to understanding things, to this idea that in order to be properly rational, you have to give a number to something. Mm. And that unless you've added a number to something, unless you've somehow quantified it, you haven't really understood it. And that this is a sort of bogus form of, I love the word that I hadn't come across before, mathiness. This is a great, great word. So bogus quantification, we think, is a serious problem in today's discussion of policy. And I think a good example was the debate on Brexit. People didn't... We, we, this is the second referendum on Brexit uh, in 19, 2016. There was one in 1975. And what I find interesting is that the debate in 1975 was about the qualitative arguments for and against joining the what was then the common market, which became the European Union. And people would talk about, well, if we join the... European Union, there would be new opportunities for trade created, but existing trade would be diverted. So trade creation versus trade diversion. These are qualitatively important ideas. What we got in 2016 was something very different. Both sides of the campaign tried to bamboozle the electorate by saying, on the one hand, we know exactly how much worse off you will be, each family will be £4,300 worse off if we leave. And the other side said... Uh, that was George Osborne, wasn't the, it? And, and the Treasury came up with these numbers. Oh, yeah. And and then £350 million a week we will have to spend on the NHS, forgetting that, actually, although that was close to our gross contribution, it would have meant having to cut back on expenditure on other types of projects. So it, you know, it wasn't free money that could be diverted to the NHS. And I think that this attempt to say to people, 
here is a number which captures all you need to know. And I was very struck talking to people, uh, not in the world of politics or economics, but they would say to me, look, we don't want you to tell us what the answer is. We want you to tell us how we can find out what are the arguments for and against, for remaining and uh, for leaving the EU. And I think we underestimate the intelligence of people at our peril because I'm afraid the Remain campaign, I think, lost out largely because many people said, well, they can't possibly know that will be £4,300 worse off. And they were right in that judgment. And that this is also a debate about values. It's, a bit not... about, it's about values. It's about, I mean, it, where is the European Union going in the future? What is happening inside the European Union? Do we want to be part of it? You know, what are our, do, are we prepared to share sovereignty? What are the arguments for and against sharing sovereignty? All of these things seem to get suppressed, just weren't there in the debate. So uh, when you went from Wolverhampton, you went to King's uh, in, in Cambridge and, and you studied economics. Was there a sort of type of economics that you were studying back then that was impregnated with these ideas that unless you can count it, it doesn't exist? So I think I was part of the generation of, young economists who were very much imbued with the idea that we have for the first time computers. This was the era in which there was a university computer and there was a model of the economy on which I was later employed which would express what was going on in the economy in terms of numbers. So I was part of all this and I think I've been on a journey from then to now which which is not one of saying we should ignore numbers, no. but it's one of thinking about which numbers are useful and not pretending that an issue can be answered by saying, well, the answer is you know 3.1 or 16. You need to think about uh, the arguments. And when confronting a problem, the question you should ask is, so what is going on here? Now, at one level, that sounds banal. But it isn't. It's deeply profound. What you don't do is to say, you know, hire a consulting firm to come up with a number which is the bottom line. You do actually try to get to the bottom of what is going on. And I, I, there's one example which I've always found very, very compelling. When AIDS started to spread, the World Health Organization wanted to know how quickly AIDS might spread in southern Africa. So they built very big and detailed computer models of the demographics of countries in southern Africa and linked them together. And you know, later, some of these models were quite useful. But one of the assumptions they made, uh, one of the, the numbers they had to feed into the computer, was the average number of sexual contacts per person per year. And the, let's suppose the number was about 100. They fed it into the... What? A hundred sexual contacts a year. Well, it, blimey! <laughs> I would dif not different people, just like well, this is the point. Oh, I this see. is okay. the point, Charles, <laughs> because that was a number that was fed into the computer model. I see. And they turned the handle and got the answer out. And then they invited uh, Robert May, Bob May, who had been chief uh, government scientist here, and a very, very distinguished physicist, mathematician, biologist, studying epidemics. And he went to look, and he didn't spend much time getting bogged down in the entrails of the demographic computer models. But he said to them, he said, do you realise that it makes an enormous difference whether the 100 sexual contacts are with all with the same person or with 100 different people? And since you don't distinguish between those two things... It's useless. It's useless. <laughs> now, the value of a model or of numbers, is to help you think about the problem. And one of the most important ways a model should be used is to say, this number is really important in understanding what's going on here. Let's go out and do some more research on it. So what Bob May was able to do was to guide these people into finding out you know, whether their sexual contacts were with one person or with many people. And that was the kind of extra research that was really important in getting to what was going on here. That's how a model should be used. It, the, what the big danger is in black box models, things which are so complex, so much data, that no one really understands what's going on. That, that's when they become positively dangerous. I mean, economics, I mean, the word itself from oikos, house, it has that sort of 
um, etymological root of the sort of domestic, the the real, you know, that's something that I you can sort of I can understand. And then suddenly, well, at some point maybe. I don't know, I ask you with Chicago school or whatever it was, this sort of obsession with it being a sort of basically a subject of extreme technicality. Yes, um, I think what is fascinating <clears throat> about this is that over 100 years ago, uh, Alfred Marshall, uh, who was regarded at the time and still is as one of the great British economists, wrote that economics was the study of everyday life. What people do in their everyday yeah. life. That's, that's the origins of the word, as you pointed out. In other words, economics was defined by the problems in the world that they studied. What's happened since the Second World War is that increasingly economics is being defined by the techniques that are used and the mathematical methods. Now, it's not really about... The amount of maths is not the issue here. But what what is important is are you really focusing on the problem in which case you want to ask what is going on here and get information from a variety of different sources. Or do you say, no, we have a technique, we've got a particular approach to a model, and that's what we're going to use, and everything has to fit into that. Yeah. And that lends, leads almost inevitably to the view that if the model <clears throat> doesn't seem to explain what's going on in the world, well, there's a problem with the world, not with the model. <laughs> and that is a very bizarre approach, and it's not a scientific approach. Well, it's not an empirical approach, is it? It's as you say in your in your book. It, it's a it's a form of axiomatic reasoning. It's based upon certain axioms that you assume, and then you deduce certain sorts of things on the basis of those axioms. But it, as you rightly say, it's not a scientific thing because it's not about empirically looking as to what is actually there or even conducting experiments. You, you, uh, I've heard you say rather amusingly that one of the reasons that you studied economics is that you were so bad at experiments. That is absolutely true. So at school, I really wanted to study cosmology and I found out that you couldn't do cosmology at Cambridge. You had to do either a maths degree or a, really science, so science in the laboratory for three years before you could go on to do uh, something like cosmology. And I realised that you know, there was no way <clears throat> that I would be able to survive a laboratory-based course for three years because you know, I, in my chemistry exams, I did extremely well at school in the theory but in, I think, four years, I don't think I ever identified one compound. <laughs> Are you clumsy, Lord King? <laughs> the, um, my wife once said to Her Majesty the Queen that I was the most impractical man <laughs> she has ever met. I thought this was an unnecessary and unwanted uh, comment, but she made it. <laughs> didn't stop you being a member of the Order of the Garter. It didn't, no. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about uh, you, you became, after you went Cambridge, you, you, you went and worked at something called the Cambridge Growth Project? Is yes, that the... and that was headed by uh, Richard Stone, who was one of the <laughs> early Nobel Prize winners from Britain in economics, and it was a computer model of the economy. And I was fascinated by it, because I think if you can somehow play with a computer and it... it, it played into my natural instincts as someone with mathematical skills to write programs, to um, you know, work out how the economy might move if you did various things to it. And um, I, I, I really enjoyed working on that. But it became pretty clear, this was an example of it, that there were certain things that the model couldn't explain. And amongst them was inflation. Because inflation did depend on things that we couldn't easily measure. The, the, the amount of money in the economy is not something that's always easy to measure precisely quantitatively. And it also depended critically on what people expected inflation would do. And that wasn't captured and wasn't easy at that point, at least, to measure empirically. But it brought... It's a very important aspect of economics, which has been, I think, understood... Uh, in theoretical terms since, but some the implications have been rather ignored, I think, which is that the behaviour of the economy does depend critically on what we think will happen, what we believe. Now, when you think about the motions of the planets around the sun or stellar motion in, in general, what we know is that, first of all, 
we think we understand the laws, and pretty much we do, that these laws haven't changed for you know many, many years. But crucially, these laws don't change depending on what we think about it. So when you launch a missile in space to send uh, a projectile to another planet to study it, then how long it takes to get there can be calculated quite accurately because it's based on known and unchanging laws. But the, the fact that we understand these laws and decide to launch this missile makes absolutely no difference to the trajectory of the missile or the planets themselves. Whereas if we believe something about inflation or about future economic growth, that can have a direct impact on how quickly the economy does grow and what inflation turns out to be. And that, that is something which uh, is, is a very important aspect of all social sciences studying the world that is not true of scientific laws. Can, can you help me on this one? You're the perfect person. Uh, um, you'll have to forgive me. I'm a recovering lefty. And as such, there's certain sorts of things, there's certain sorts of words that I, I still don't know quite what to do with, put it that way. And one of these words is growth. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking particularly of that well-known David Attenborough um, quote, and this is obviously related to the environment, that those people who believe in infinite growth on a finite planet are either madmen or economists, I think is what he said. <laughs> now, you're an economist, and, and uh, we, you know, we're... <clears throat> All politicians, everybody seems to think that growth is the right, very, very good thing, except when they move into a sort of green mode and then they think this is a terrible thing. How, how, do, we, how do we reconcile these two things, or, or is there no contradiction here? I don't think deep down there is a contradiction. Uh, it, other things being equal, rising living standards have taken you know, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, out of poverty in the last 30, 40 years. And taking people out of poverty is a good thing by providing better paid jobs for them to carry out. So in that sense, economic growth is something which is desirable. And in some sense, it's likely to be inevitable because uh, science makes progress. It produces new ideas, new products, new technical processes. So we can always produce more with the same input over time. And that's productivity growth. And therefore, you would expect with the same number of people that you would be able to produce more. And if you don't do that, you'll either be throwing away uh, things that you can produce or you'll make people redundant and unemployed. So in that sense, economic growth is a natural part of the way the economy expands. That does not mean, however, to say that we should not care about the kind of economic growth that we have. Far from it. And I think that you know, one of the big contributions of economists in the last 20 years has been to try to make people understand the economic arguments about climate change. The scientists can tell us what is going on to the climate. Uh, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about that. But what economics is quite good at doing is helping you understand that even if you don't really know as much as you'd like to about the science, that is not a reason for inaction. It is a very good argument that says that what we should try to do is to keep as many options open as possible. That the idea, if anyone believes that there's just one thing that we need to do to combat climate change and only one thing, that's a very dangerous position in my view because we may discover that the nature of climate change is still very serious but a little different than we had thought today. And therefore, having a range of different policies, different policies to combat climate change, means you don't want to put all your uh, eggs in one basket. People for a long while have thought about how would you manage a nuclear power plant or petrochemicals complex when, if you're not careful, something dreadful could happen. So how do you deal with that? And what you do is, first of all, to try to make sure that you know, parts of the system can fail without the whole thing failing. Uh, the aspect of climate change that's relevant to that is that if the climate is affecting the entire globe it's going to be very difficult to insulate one part of the world from other parts. We'll all suffer in one way or another. Uh, so that, that means that the, the scale of the problem is, is much more serious than you might otherwise think. The other approach that's used is, is uh, redundancy. That is, you may, if you're making an aeroplane or a complex engineering product, you make it to a degree of tolerance that's much greater than you think you actually need. You play safe. 
uh, so that when something unexpected happens, you've actually got that margin. And this is very important in designing it. In many areas of economic life, and particularly the financial system, this is, the, I think, the best example, we did exactly the opposite. So that when I was a student at Cambridge um, and looked at the books and, and readings on monetary economics, I learned that banks were told that they had to keep, as a liquidity ratio, about 30% of their total assets in the form of either cash or very short-term government securities. So that if people did take the money out of the bank or didn't extend the loans to the bank, then the bank have enough liquidity to cope and get through that. What we've done in the last 30, 40 years is to say, well, this is inefficient. We can afford to run banks with a much lower level of liquid assets. And in fact, by the time we got to 2007, many of the big banks had less than 1% of, wow. their, of their assets in, in, in liquid form. That meant they were very fragile, which was exactly what we saw in 2008. So it, whether it, if it may look inefficient in normal times, but if you don't know what big bad events can come along in the future, it's very sensible to build in redundancy into the system and to try to ensure that if one bank or one part of the system fails, it doesn't immediately impact on others. And we neither of these things we did before the financial crisis, and we've gone a long way since to do something about it. So John Vickers' report on the Banking Commission tackled both of these by saying we need a ring fence between different parts of banks' activities, and banks ought to hold or to issue more equity capital so that they can absorb more losses if something bad were to occur. And these concepts of robustness and resilience seem to be fundamental to coping with a world in which we don't really know what's going to happen. And, and, is, and is the reason that we went from 30% to 1% or 2% is the reason we had the confidence or banks had the sort of chutzpah to do that is because they were overly confident in the models that they'd produce for themselves. Yes, I think they were certainly overly confident and they wanted to use the argument that if you let us run the bank with fewer liquid assets, we can make more money. So there's a great commercial pressure to go in that direction. But that's not we, we don't allow commercial pressures to override safety concerns in other industries and we shouldn't in the, in the financial sector. When it comes to talking about what happened in the 2007-2008... Uh, I thought I'd done terribly well after I'd got my head round credit default swaps after a long time and, you know, mortgages packaged up and what happened in Florida and all this sort of thing. Just about got my head round that. And then I heard you talking about, no, it's not really about that. It's about low interest rates. <laughs> and that sort of... Could you explain that to me? So I think the fundamental cause of all this was that really after the fall of the Berlin Wall, China and the former Soviet Union and some other economies entered the world trading system. And that introduced into world manufacturing, we doubled or trebled the size of the labor force working in that part of the world trading system. And China started to grow very rapidly because it was cheaper to produce things in China than elsewhere. Now, this rapid growth of the Chinese economy went hand in hand with very high savings because China wanted to rely on export-led growth. So they were selling more things to the rest of the world than they were buying. And that meant they were, in effect, having to lend to the rest of the world. So they had lots of savings. They were pushing into the world capital market. And that pushed down long-term interest rates. Now, if you push down interest rates, which was a sort of secular process over 30 years, what happens is that the value of assets, shares, stocks, bonds, you know, fine wine, art, all kinds of assets go up in value because the value of an asset is the value today of what the services of those assets will yield in the future. And if you're discounting at a lower rate, those future returns appear more valuable today. So asset prices went up, including, of course, houses, prime example. If asset prices go up, then in order to buy the asset or in just to hold it, perhaps, you need to borrow, borrow more. And so people went to their banks and said, we'd like to borrow. And to be honest, the banking system did what it was supposed to do in a market economy. It supplied the demand for loans at the prevailing interest rate. 
What the banking system, I think, got wrong was that in order to do that, the banking system had to get bigger, and it financed most of that expansion by borrowing itself very short term from hedge funds, other financial institutions, depositors, instead of financing at least part of it by issuing new shares to the people who owned banks. If they'd done that, then what's called the leverage of the banking system, you know, the total debt of the banks relative to their their own capital, would not have risen as sharply as it did in the five to ten years before the financial crisis. So when we got to 2007, we had a situation of very low interest rates, high asset prices, but the particular problem was that the banking system was now very fragile, and it didn't take more than a, one or two small events to push it over the edge. And this is where we come back to the complex instruments because you normally think in economic terms that the reason people create these instruments is to allow risk to be shared across the economy. Pension funds can buy risky assets to get a higher return for the pensioners. So the economic argument normally is that those people who produce and package these uh, complex financial instruments sell them to people who are best able to bear the risk. It's what a market economy does. Actually, what we learned in 2008 was that many of these things have been sold to people who weren't best able to bear the risks, and in fact were the people who didn't understand the risks. Uh, and the and, banks themselves weren't able to bear the risks. And banks themselves found that having got into that position, when there was some bad news about in this case, the housing market, and people realised that house prices could go down as well as up, then there was, uh, if you like, a, a light bulb moment in which they came to realise that perhaps the value of these complex instruments wasn't what it was made out to be. Uh, I gave a speech in which I described it as, it may say, AAA or champagne on the bottle, but when you open it, it could be flat. And, uh, you know, this is a serious problem. So... Did, 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 when, when, you were in the, when you were in the... Sorry to interrupt you. When, when you were in the, in the Bank of England as governor of the bank, did you, see it, did you see it coming before other people did? I don't want to say that because I think other people also would argue. In fact, it's amazing how many people today seem to claim that they did see it all coming. <laughs> but what you could not have done was to have said on the 15th of September 2008, Lehman Brothers will collapse. You couldn't have said that because if you had said that and people believed you, it wouldn't have collapsed on the 15th September 2008. It might well have gone a lot earlier. So, But what you could see was that there were problems building up. And what you could not tell was how they would work out. Where would the problem be? I remember going to meetings at the IMF where a lot of people thought that the end of all this would be a collapse of the US dollar, not a collapse of the US banking system. And I, there are many things which therefore are very difficult to forecast, but that isn't the issue whether you can forecast or not. The issue really is, do we understand what's going on? It may sound a banal question, but it's of fundamental importance. What is going on here? And if we had talked more about that and said, what is going on here with these complex instruments is not that the banks are creating them in order to sell them to rational institutions who can best bear the risk. But actually what's happening is that these assets are being dumped on people who didn't understand the risk. There's, I, I'm always reminded when I start to get at the edge of my competence with regard to economics and, and the sort of way, the functioning of the, the, the economy, how people must have felt in the sort of medieval theology when they heard the sort of upper reaches of the church discussing terribly complicated forms of metaphysics. But actually, this was about my salvation, or so, you know, so they thought. Yes. And this this relationship between something that seems, you know, sort of unspeakably complicated to the man on the Clapham omnibus is, is also something that's, you know, involved, intimately con connected to their well-being. And that's a, that's a, you know, you know I, part of me would like you just to get on and do your complicated stuff, but I can't because I, I really have to understand it. And when we start hearing about, you know, people in banks not really understanding what it is that they've been investing in. This, there's also a sort of a crisis of confidence in the way in which the, the whole economy works, I guess. And I think it's... Uh, obviously, there are some aspects of, um, whether it's the science or the technical nature of financial instruments, 
that are not easy for anyone to understand. But actually, deep down, if you ask the question, what is really going on here, then that is something that can be explained to large numbers of people. And we need experts to tell us, for example, that the coronavirus that we are going through now, we need scientists who can tell us about the nature of the virus. We need scientists to develop a vaccine for it. What we don't want are experts who come along and say uh, it takes you know, precisely 12 days for this virus to spread from one to another because we don't really know enough about it. What we want are experts who are humble enough to say, I don't know the answer to this. We're going to try and find out, and over time we may discover enough. But a good expert will be able to tell us the nature of the problem that we should be concerned about and help us think about the problem more clearly. And I think, actually, that's happened with the response to the coronavirus. I'm quite impressed by how both the experts and the public health authorities have responded to this challenge in a way where, if you look back at the financial crisis, it somehow became much more political rather than we're all in it together and we have to find a way through it. Part of the problem, the political problem, I suppose, with the financial crisis is and maybe this relates in some ways to the sort of what you spoke of as the gut understanding, the sort of evolutionary understanding, a sort of simple-minded understanding also, perhaps, is that when ordinary people fail, <laughs> you know, they go to jail, or, you know, they, 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 they go up, they, they, they have all their, their stuff removed. When people in the city fail in such a catastrophic way, this doesn't seem to happen. You know, it's just like that all this stuff about too big to fail, moral hazard, all of that sort of stuff... And the, the, the moral problem here is so deep. <laughs> but part of me, and I sort of know the answer to this, but part of me feels like, why don't you let them fail? <laughs> so so you, the reason you don't let them fail is because it would damage all of us very deeply. We, we depend on the banking system to ensure that we get paid our salaries, that we can make our mortgage payments go through, that we pay our gas they bills. They hold us to ransom. Well, not necessarily. I mean, what happened, what was wrong in the financial crisis was that before the crisis, banks had not paid what I will call the equivalent of an insurance premium yeah. so that when they ran short of cash, when people decided they wouldn't continue lending to banks short term or depositors took their money out... It's sensible for the central bank then to supply that cash against you know, good credit, collateral, um, not cheaply, but uh, at a fair fair rate, to make sure the bank doesn't fail. And that's exactly what we did. But what needs to be done is to put in place a regime such that the banks essentially prepay for the right to access that line of credit from the central bank. And that's what wasn't done, but it can be done. I've written about that in my yeah. previous book, The End of Alchemy. And I th think it's a very important thing to put in place because you don't want people to react by saying, well, this is unfair because I wouldn't be entitled to this loan, which is true. But banks are entitled to it because we can't afford to let them collapse, can't afford to let the system fail. And if that's true, then we have to force the banks to pay for the insur insurance policy right up front. Are we doing that now? We're doing a little bit of it, but not as much as I would like to see us do. I think the Bank of England have gone further than most other central banks in this, and I think it's very much to the credit of the Bank of England. But I think there's still a bit further to go. I'm very interested in the relationship, and it's a very complicated relationship, but the relationship between what happened in 2007, 2008, and I suppose what people might call the rise of populism or, you know, that sort of the sense of widespread disaffection with <coughs> with systems, establishment systems maybe more generally. Um, now, I know it's not an easy... To draw a simple line between the two is, is not a straightforward thing to do, but can you see connection between those two things? Well, there's certainly a connection between what happened in the financial crisis and the current state of political opinion in the United Kingdom and some other advanced countries. I think it's important to preface that remark, however, by saying that you know, populism takes a different form in different parts of the world. In Latin America, you know, vast inequality in the ownership of land and wealth 
has generated populism there for many, many decades. You know, Evita is the example of the response of that, and we saw it in Venezuela, and the fact that the attempt there to deal with those problems just collapsed. In most of continental Europe, I think populism has taken, has arisen as a reaction against the failure economically of the monetary union. I think it's imposed massive unemployment in southern Europe and it's built up contingent liabilities for northern Europe, which their governments deny exist but potentially could be damaging in the future. I think in the UK, because we had such a large financial centre here, it was very clear that having gone through a period from you know, really 1980 through to 2007 in which people had come to accept the argument that if we are prepared to abide by the discipline of the free market, which means that if people don't want to buy our products, the businesses fail and we lose our jobs and have to find a different job. They come to appreciate that by accepting that, their living standards could be higher and unemployment lower as a result, actually, because people could then move to new jobs. And uh, <clears throat> we'd made big progress in that direction. But then, of course, you find that when the financial sector fails, as you said, there isn't, where's the discipline on it? You know, they, didn't, they weren't allowed to fail because we, I think, rightly decided that to allow all the big banks to fail would actually do vast damage to the rest of the economy. So I remember going to the Treasury Committee and it's saying that the reason we're making these loans available is not to protect the banks, it's to protect the rest of the economy from the banks. That's why we did it. But that's not a satisfactory endpoint because it was unfair. But I've heard you say not just too big to fail, but too big to jail yes. and too big to sail. Yes. And, and, I mean, people didn't go to prison. And when you say too big to sail, it's that these, organ these banks, HSBC and so forth, are so huge that leadership finds it hellish difficult to know what's actually going on. Mexican, you know, uh, shenanigans. And, you know, so the trust in the system, I don't see how it's returned. No, I, in many ways it hasn't. And I think people are, are worried. I think there has been a change in banking culture. I think there was a degree of arrogance uh, just before the crisis hit, which was should have been unacceptable. I remember <clears throat> when I spoke in a speech about uh, the complex instruments being like a champagne bottle where when you open it, it's flat. Or when, if banks borrow too much, this has always been associated in the past with financial crises. And I said, at the end of that section of the speech, I said, why do we think we are wiser than the financiers of the past? To which some section of the audience booed at that point. Oh, really? And there was there was an extraordinary complacency and arrogance because in the good times the banks have been so profitable that they thought gosh we're making lots of money I must be brilliant and in fact that's a very dangerous conclusion to draw and you can see the reverse is happening now I talked earlier about interest rates falling when China joined the world trading system and that went on for 20 or 30 years and the asset prices rose well if you're living in a period as we were before the financial crisis when asset prices are rising it's not that difficult to make money. You don't have to have brilliant strategies. You just no. have to hold the assets. Yeah. And what people did was then to pay themselves large bonuses out of these returns, which one day are bound to go into reverse. But it will then be too late to claw back the bonuses that people made before the crisis. We now have a regime for compensation in the regulation of the banking system, which means that bank, banks can't pay their employees very large bonuses immediately. They do have to wait for a period. So we've made some, some real progress. But nevertheless, people do feel that it was unfair, and they're right. And that's why I think we still need to make a few more changes to make sure that the banking system is you know, more robust, more resilient. People always believe that uh, the, the the past, you know, part of the narrative of progress, which always slightly bothers me, really, is is, is that the past was rather, people were always rather stupid in the past, and we know so much better than than they do now. And um, I, I wonder whether you know that, that that's partly why we reinvent for ourselves some of the same problems that we. Yeah, we, I'm sure going, that's true. Yeah. So I remember as a student, 
why was I excited about economics? Because we were applying new methods of mathematics and computers. And I looked at the pictures of people who took decisions in the 1930s when we had the Great Recession, Great Depression. Idiots. <laughs> and what do you? I mean, they all had these big whiskers and hats, and you yes, thought, yes, yes. God, they were funny duddies. Yes, yes, Real yes. Real funny duddies. Yes. Well, how wrong can you be? Yes. And during the crisis, I went back and read a lot of the things that people were writing in the 1930s, and much of it hit home. And that is why uh, I came to realise that some of the deeper ideas as to why we get into these quite serious problems reflect the fact that the world is radically uncertain and you cannot fool yourself into thinking that by the use of either computers or probabilities that you can somehow price all the risks in the world and then sell the risks in a market in such a way that we've tamed it. You know, we're used to producing breakfast cereals and soap powder and selling it in a free market. And we, we've tamed the problem, quite complex technology in some cases, but it's all managed and we buy and sell these things. Risk about an unknowable future is not like that. Finally, I just want to put to you something that uh, I've thought about a bit and um, I sort of, I, I've talked about a bit and, and I'd love to have your wisdom on it. I've always been struck by that brilliant essay by... John Maynard Keynes, about the economic possibilities for our grandchildren. And in that essay, as you know, um, he has broadly two predictions. One is that we're going to get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, roughly speaking, and the graph is going up. And and broadly speaking, he was right about that. (laughs) And then, and also the second prediction is that we were going to work because of that. We're going to work less and less and less. Um, We're going to sort of have this idenic sort of you know lifestyle where we would sort of read books in our gardens with our with our kids and we'd do less and less and and of course that's not true at all <laughs> we've worked much much harder and the, the essay is extraordinary it ends almost sort of religious with the with with the stuff about the lilies of the field and stuff like that it seems to me that one of the reasons that he was wrong about us working less is that he wasn't able to make a distinction between wants and needs. Is that, you know, we get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, and that may cover our basic needs of shelter and certain amount of food and so forth. But our wants are insatiable, and we can, you know, keep on wanting more and more and more, and advertising can make us feel dissatisfied with our lot and make us wanting more and more and more. And so we end up fueling this sort of like this this furious economy by being you know made to feel dissatisfied with what we have and going out and getting more and part of me and, and this is the this is the clergyman in me part of me feels that certain ways in which i suppose i have a particular bugbear about advertising but the certain way the economies are driven uh, for us to sort of go out and spend are sorts of machines for the generation of unhappiness you know, so they sort of like say, you you need a new this, you need a new that. Don't be satisfied with what you are. Salvation exists in the shopping centre. Do you understand? That's why I've, no, I've I had a little mini sermon. I apologise so, for that. Well, I, I totally agree that it would be a serious mistake to think that the improvements in the material standard of living automatically make people happier. That's absolutely true. But I think there are two sorts of reasons for supposing that the improvement in material living standards that we've experienced is a are a good thing. One is that those people at the bottom of the income scale, people in poverty, have been helped a great deal. And secondly, that when people come up with new ideas, new products, etc., people do actually want to take advantage of it. And I don't think one should resist that. I'll give you one trivial example. I, I still have memories of when I was a young man, taking a train on British Rail and finding the train breaking down in the middle of the countryside, totally unable to tell people waiting for me at the other end what had happened, where I was, what was going on. Now you just ring them on their mobile phone. And that's a massive improvement in our ability to interact. But what I, I think is the the problem in all this is that somehow... And this is where you come in, because what we don't want is for people to feel that the purpose of life is to acquire material things. 
It's something which you shouldn't object to the people wanting to do it, but it's not the purpose of life. And I, my co-author, John Kay, sometimes puts it in the way, you know, rational economic man will surely die out because no one would want to mate with them. <laughs> and and I think you know, John's hit the nail on, on the head there, that there is much more to life. That doesn't mean to say that we should abandon the quest for trying to improve our material living standards. You know, we we don't have to rely on open coal fires now in the way that we did. And we can choose whether to spend some of our improved productivity on trying to compact, combat climate change or producing you know, more casinos. The, the, these are, there are value judgments and moral judgments in all this. Uh, and and these, are the, these factors, I think, matter enormously. And they're not ones which are, you know, most economists don't feel that that's the area where they should make judgments. It, this is collectively where we have to make make these decisions and judgments. Well, why do you think uh, Keynes was wrong about uh, uh, us working less? Because I think he was projecting on most other people his own values. I mean, he came from a home where and lived in a group of people where you know material want was not really an issue. He lived in his college in Cambridge. I see. I you see. Know, the meals were provided, and for him. The purpose of life was to have serious intellectual debate with other people around him and to go to the Arts Theatre in Cambridge and the Opera in London, the higher things in life. Um, he did once, bizarrely, go to a football match. Oh, did he? Yeah. And he went to Villa Park. It was a very wise decision on his part, <laughs> though he was actually taken there. And he has this wonderful description about Villa Park in a top of the league table match in which he compares it to the Colosseum in Rome. <laughs> and and he would never go to a match again in the rest of his life. But what he was talking about, basically he didn't really understand that people who didn't have his approach and attitude to life but had to work in the coal mines or working on the bus would find that the ability to acquire ultimately carpets and central heating and mobile phones were things which improved the quality of their lives and therefore people carried on working. Now, <clears throat> I think one of the... You talked about wants and needs and I think one of the things we do need to be careful about in modern life is that if people at the top or, or the average person develops their wants and they want something... Take a mobile phone. If you all want a mobile phone, that changes the need for people at the very bottom. It can be, for example, it's very difficult now to be able to take part in many aspects of, of life without having access to the Internet. Well, to have access to the Internet, you would have a computer of some kind, know how to use it. Uh, and there are many older people who find this difficult. Some don't. But you know, by allowing wants to be developed freely... We are affecting the needs of those at the bottom of the scale. I can't help harbour, and this is an instinctive thing, I can't help harbour a, a sort of suspicion of this sort of um, optimism about progress that you have as being some sort of, I don't know, Ponzi scheme almost. I mean, with, you know, we have plastic in the ocean, we, 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 we're, the, 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 the environment seems to be, be rubbished. There seems to be, you know, huge discontent in the world in a way I, I understand all the stuff about bringing people out of poverty I really really do and and that mustn't the left mustn't ever sort of rubbish that that's absolutely a terribly important thing that capitalism's done but part of me sort of still is nervous about that terrible song that the Labour Party had in their 1997 election which things can always get better which sort of drove me mad I I I don't know. I mean, isn't that no, I precisely the reason that we so, got into the crash in the first so place? So I think you're absolutely right. And nothing that I said about the benefits of economic growth should be interpreted as saying that we ought not to be concerned about the direction in which growth goes and its side effects. And once you realise that what is going on here is that we have, not deliberately, but as a byproduct of what we've done, polluted the ocean and put plastic in places that you would never have imagined it would be. I mean, shocking pictures of plastic on the bottoms of oceans. 
that we've reducing the rainforests, that we're damaging the environment. Um, you then say, well, what's going on is something deeply unattractive and we must stop it. And then you say, well, how can we do that? And at that point, you need to recognise that we are still pretty uncertain as to the nature of the science here. We don't know every. We know something. We know quite a bit, but we don't know everything. And therefore, the right strategy is to try and cover all the bases, do as many things as you can to give us options in the future. And I think we ought to be spending a lot more on the investment in research and development in technologies that will help us to capture carbon and reduce some of the byproducts of carbon, as well as taking measures to ensure that people's incentive to emit carbon is limited. But it's not just, there's not just one policy or one thing that will work. Uh, and I understand the passion of, of younger people about this. Just expressing frustration and anger about it isn't enough. It's a starting point. I understand why it's there. But it's not the answer. And the answer is bound to be something where we need experts to say, well, you know, we need more options here. We, we, we've got to find different ways in which we can protect the, the, the environment. And economists do have a habit of saying, well, people just go around maximising things. And we think this, this is a misleading way of describing the world. It may be a helpful way to think about models and abstract thinking about economics that may produce insights about the world. But if you're trying to understand how the world works, it's quite clear that nobody has the information to maximise anything. What we're trying to do is to... It's more than muddle through. It's trying to find practical responses to problems that they arise, which are perhaps good enough for the moment, and learning from past experiences. And these are things we need to carry forward, forward into the public policy debate. And this bogus quantification that there is somebody out there who can give you a numerical answer to a problem is not helpful. We're in the middle of this virus crisis. And one of the things about the virus struck me is it, it makes us more keenly aware, perhaps, than we were before of our interconnectivity, that something that jumped from a bat in a part of China I've never been to, never probably will, may well affect my family or the people who live around me. Um, that sense of interconnectivity... I, I guess people call it globalisation now. But that globalisation felt started in the... Well, one of its sort of great battering rams was the, was the financial sector. And yet, of course, there's also this sort of movement against that, partly about... Partly we, we call it um, populism, but it's this sort of national boundaries being terribly important and the desire to balance the sort of sense of control that you get with national boundaries plus the advantages you get with the free movement of capital. How do you see the respective value of the, the balance between... I suppose this is a Brexit question, but it's sort of hidden. <laughs> the respective, I don't know, value of, of a sense of boundedness to our society, but the unboundedness that exists within financial markets. So I think the coronavirus does illustrate the problem quite well. As you say, the problem itself is global. Uh, I don't think it's the result of the what people often describe as globalisation, that is, you know, China coming into the world trading system, etc. It's the ease of communication and the fact that people travel all around the world now easily and, and want to do so. So that we've known for quite a long while that if a virus were to arise, it would get to Heathrow at some point and then spread in the rest of the UK. So um, that interconnectivity is crucial in understanding what's going on. The question is, when you want to deal with the consequences of the virus, how do you best do it? And the best response has to be again a collective one, but it needs to be done in the context of groups of people who are willing to submit to a rule of law in one part of their, their, the world they live in. And nation states have arisen to provide that. And I think that uh, you know each nation is coming up with its own response to the coronavirus. They are still cooperating very closely with each other. I think it would be awful if the only response to the coronavirus was decisions taken by the World Health Organization. You've got to have this, the support, the belief in each country that the government is helping us and it's taking measures to help us deal with it. That doesn't in any way preclude cooperation, close cooperation. And I'm quite impressed by what's happened in the response to the coronavirus. 
governments have been willing, A, to work together. China, for example, provided the sort of DNA of the virus to the West pretty early on so that people could begin thinking about a vaccine, but also, you know, what's the nature of the virus? Um, and uh, the measures taken have to be enforced. I mean, China put in place quarantine. That's happening in Italy. It, but these measures, in order to be accepted by people, have to be imposed by a political authority where people have consciously decided over a long period that we will abide by the decisions of this of this authority. And I think that's so. That's an apologia for the nation state. Yes, you know, in a way, it is, and and I think it's very important not just to throw it away. You know, people often like to say we we must abandon the nation state; it just leads to wars. But the idea that just getting rid of the nation state would stop people fighting each other or terrorist movements arising, I think, is a is a misnomer. But it's the important thing to stress is that it's consent by people to an authority above them. Uh, elected by them, and an agreement that this is the unit which will take our decisions. None of this prevents very close cooperation between different nation states. You know, I saw it in the financial crisis that each country had its own central bank, but the central bankers could co cooperate together very closely on the telephone all the time, meeting regularly. You know, one simple example, not from the financial crisis, but from something earlier, after the terrible events of September the 11th, 2001. The head of the Federal Reserve in the United States, Alan Greenspan, was stuck in Europe and couldn't get back. So when we talk to the Federal Reserve, since the convention is that you talk to your opposite number, I, as deputy governor, spoke to the deputy chairman of the Federal Reserve, Roger Ferguson. And the Federal Reserve in New York was closed because of the terrible terrorist act. But our banks in New York, British banks in New York, couldn't at the end of the day get dollars that they needed. And this was a problem that was going to persist and they couldn't clear their books. So I rang up Roger Ferguson and said, look, this is the problem. Can we find a way of dealing with it? And we did a, what's called a swap. That is, we gave them so many billions of pounds and he gave us about $25 billion dollars. And that meant that we at the Bank of England could lend dollars to our banks so they could make their dollar payments. And then a couple of weeks later on, we just reversed it. And that was done entirely on trust. Not a lawyer was to be seen in this process, unlike most financial transactions. And I, I knew Roger well, and he knew me, and we knew we could trust each other. And we did it on that basis. So it is possible and to how, have... How much money was that done on the basis of trust? The billions of dollars, about $25 billion. Wow. You know? So, uh, but the exact amount doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, 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 big, it's the principle. Big matters. Big matters. I mean, it wasn't $10. And, uh, it, but it shows that countries can work closely together. There are millions of examples of this uh, where politicians have worked closely together with governments and politicians in other countries. But the basis on which they can do that is that they have a democratic mandate to represent their country. And it's it's foolish to abandon that and throw it away. If you want effective action, you need people who feel they can actually take decisions. And I think that we knew that a virus of some kind at some point was likely. This is not a completely unexpected event. But no one would know when this would happen, from where the virus might come, what type of virus it would be, how quickly it would spread, how serious it would be. And if, you know, somebody had said on the December, end of last year, there's a kind of 12% probability of a virus of this kind emerging, that would have been a completely unhelpful statement because you couldn't possibly know. And what does the number help you understand? What does the number help? And, and what you want to be able to do is to say, look, we will be confronted in the future with potential viruses that we can't easily define now. We know something that they could spread quickly and they can be dangerous and some of them may turn out to be deadly. We just don't know. So what should we do in this state of ignorance about the future? What we should do is to ask the question, so, you know, what, what's sort of going on? And what we need to do is to say, well, 
we might need to impose quarantine measures quickly. So let's anticipate that and get the plans ready, contingency plans. And I think the public health authorities in the UK have done a very good job of that. They've been thinking about it. Different countries are cooperating. The Wellcome Trust in the UK is an important uh, example of that in dis- in thinking about pandemics and how you might develop vaccines quickly. We know, for example, that when something like this occurs, we are likely to need temporary hospital facilities that we wouldn't normally need. Now, it doesn't really make sense to have build 50 hospitals and have them empty around the country all year long. What it does make sense is to ask the question, we can't build hospitals in two weeks, like, like the Chinese. As, as the Chinese appear to be able to do. But what could we do to prepare to make available temporary facilities that we could use to deal with the pandemic that we could then unwind at a reasonable cost? These are the important questions to ask. It's not pretending that we can foresee the future. It's not pretending that we can quantify the effects of the virus. It's asking the deeper question, what is going on here and what kind of things should we put in place to prepare for it? Now, I think what's happened in the UK has been quite a good example of doing that properly. And But we don't know how quickly the virus will spread. There's no one's pretending that we do. And that's one of the great, I think, uh, achievements of handling on this occasion. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Giles. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Unheard.com.